Hey, folks. Welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 40 with a cat's ears barely in the frame. Um, We are facing the most remarkable stuff and we are continuing to grapple with it live with you all. Heather Hying, how shall we start today? May we start uh, with a brief reading from The Coddling of the American Mind? Excellent. All right. So this book, for those of you who don't know, uh, by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, was published two years ago this week. Uh, It's an extraordinary book. It was based on an article in The Atlantic of the same name, I believe, uh, from a couple of years prior. And um, Pamela Peresky, who was their senior researcher on the book, uh, approached us along with Jonathan Haidt, just as Evergreen was blowing up, to talk to us about what what we were seeing there. Um, <clears throat> and so we were um, we were privileged to be able to see this book as it was as it was emerging. Uh, and <clears throat> excuse me, um, I just want to briefly summarize a couple of their main points and then read a little bit from it. Uh, so they start by naming three, what they call three great untruths, uh, which are what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, what they call the untruth of fragility, always trust your feelings, what they call the untruth of emotional reasoning, and life is a battle between good people and bad people, the untruth of us versus them. This, of course, is um, akin to what we've been calling the battle between the star snitches and the snitches without that was cat chaos in the background, if you guys could hear that. <clears throat> so in this final section of the book, they refer to those truths and they say, okay, but um, what, what may explain them? And they say, we present six interacting explanatory threads. Rising political polarization and cross-party animosity. Rising levels of teen anxiety and depression. Changes in parenting practices. The decline of free play the growth of campus bureaucracy, and a rising passion for justice in response to major national events combined with changing ideas about what justice requires. So all of those, of course, are, um, if anything, more relevant, more apropos today than when they published the book. And, you know, they, of course, books aren't written the day they're published. So when they were writing this, when they were first seeing some of these things emerging on campus in particular, and they they point to 2014 as a sort of a a pivot point. Um, And then they wrote their... uh, article in the Atlantic. I can't remember if it was 15 or 16. Uh, and then this was published two years ago. And here we are today with, you know, ex- such extreme examples of polarization on the streets and, and you know, all of these things, but also to, to look to their last one, uh, changing ideas about what justice requires. Right. So here, uh, they have earlier in the book on page 75, 76, they describe a scene from uh, September 6, 2017. So this would have been after Charlottesville, within a month or so of Charlottesville, I think. And uh, I just want to read to you their description of what happened here. Appeals to common humanity still work just as well today as when Dr. King made them. On September 16, 2017, on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., a group of Trump supporters organized a rally they called the Mother of All Rallies Patriot Unification Gathering. Counter-protesters from Black Lives Matter showed up and shouted at the Trump supporters. The Trump supporters shouted back. Someone on stage told the Trump supporters to pay no attention to the counter-protesters. They don't exist, he said. 
Hawk Newsom, the leader of the BLM counter-protesters, later said that he expected to, quote, stand there with his fist in the air in a very militant way and to exchange insults. Tensions mounted and onlookers recorded video of the potentially explosive situation. Then the Trump rally organizer, who goes by the name Tommy Gunn, took the stage. It's about freedom of speech, he said. And in an unexpected move, he invited Newsom and other BLM supporters onto the stage. We're going to give you two minutes of our platform to put your message out, Gunn told Newsom. Now, whether they disagree or agree with your message is irrelevant. It's the fact that you have the right to have the message. Newsom took the stage. I'm an American, he began, and the crowd cheered. And the beauty of America is that when you see something broke in your country, you can mobilize to fix it. But then, as he spoke about a black man being killed by police, the crowd began to turn on him. They booed, shut up, that was a criminal, a woman shouted. Newsom explained, we are not anti-cop. Yes, you are, people shouted. We're anti-bad cop, Newsom insisted. He still seemed to be losing them. We don't want handouts, he told the crowd. We don't want anything that is yours. We want our God-given right to freedom, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now they were coming back around. People cheered. Someone in the crowd shouted, all lives matter which is usually intended as a rebuke to those who say that black lives matter. But Newsom responded in the tradition of Polly Murray by drawing a larger circle around everyone in the crowd. You're right, my brother, you're right. You are so right. All lives matter, right? But when a black life is lost, we get no justice. That is why we say black lives matter. If we really want to make America great, we do it together. The crowd cheered and chanted, USA, USA. In an instant, the two groups were no longer us and them. Their ideological differences remained, but within that larger circle around them, their enmity melted away, and at least for a short while, they interacted as fellow human beings and fellow Americans. It kind of restored my faith, Newsom said when interviewed afterwards. Two sides that never listened to each other actually made progress today. One of the leaders of Bikers for Trump came up to Newsom afterward and shook his hand. The two men talked and then posed for a photo together, with Newsom holding the other man's young son cradled in his arm. So... That has many of the elements that we recognize from today's protests and riots, and yet has a, a very different tenor in part because members of both sides, the, the would-be leaders of both sides, are willing to say, you have a space to talk here, and we are going to listen. We don't have to agree. Uh, people on our side may yell at you, uh, but we're, we're going to listen. Uh, let me compare that to today's rhetoric before asking you to, to comment. Um, on August 20th, uh, just a couple days ago, we received an email. Actually, before I say this, I will say that actually right now, as we are live, right now in downtown Portland, there is uh, a rally, a set of rallies and a set of counter rallies in downtown Portland uh, between basically um, right of center protesters and left of center protesters. And I don't, I, I, I think that um, at least one of the groups uh, right of center is the Proud Boys, and certainly one of the groups left of center is Black Lives Matter and Antifa. That's like two groups with tight uh, correlation. Um, and they are, you know, right now um, meeting on the streets of Portland. Squaring off, which Squaring is something off. that they have done regularly. They effectively yeah. announce, one group announces that it will be there, the other group announces that it will show up, and things um, unfold from there. I yeah. should say I've attended one of these just to see what it looked like That's on right. both sides. And um, in general, uh <laughs> It is a contained version of what is now uncontained in mm -hmm. Portland. But I would, 
I mean, we'll, we'll hear about it. We'll find out. Um, but uh, I'll bet that today's events are not as contained. In part, um, this, is, uh, this is one of the first times that the people from the right have declared uh, in advance that they're going to show up for a while. Certainly, I, th- I think, I may be wrong about this, um, but certainly um, the first time maybe in this 80 plus days that the riots have been nightly in Portland and maybe... Um, you know, if they showed up, it was at all. It's been it was early in this. So, um, on August twentieth, today is the twenty second. So two days ago, we received an email from a viewer of this live stream who lives in North Portland, which is two blocks from the police union building on North Lombard that has been at the center of some of the protests and riots in Portland. So there's sort of four broad areas, not large areas, but sort of four buildings really that the protesters and then the rioters have have targeted. And um, the police building on North Lombard in, in North Portland has been one of them. So this is a viewer who lives just a couple blocks from that building. And he said, yesterday, these pamphlets were placed on the front porches in my neighborhood. It's blatant propaganda and some of the verbiage is disconcerting at best. So I just, he, he included... Uh, screenshots, or not screenshots, he took pictures and he showed us that. So um, we're going to show you these. Zach, would you show the first of those four pictures from the, um, yep, yeah, and maybe just make it a little bigger so people can can see it a little bit more. Okay, it's 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 fine. Okay, uh, so that's the, that's the cover. Um, next page. Uh, somewhere on this, uh, we can't, we, we can't read this, but somewhere on this it says, do not expect peace from the police, a fundamentally violent institution which functions to suppress effective social movements. That's a claim. Um, next page. Somewhere on this page it says, night after night, police respond with violent escalation regardless of protesters' actions. Another claim, I think unfounded. And final page, how you can help. On the ground, you can leave water bottles out for protesters. You can provide verbal support from your homes. Most importantly, you could join us on the streets. There is strength in numbers. The more people there are out on the streets, the less likely it is that the cops will injure people. So just one more thing um, before I ask us to talk about this a little bit. Zach, if you would show the video um, that I asked you to show from North Portland last night. Out of your house and into the streets. So that is by far not the most violent of the videos from the nighttime protests slash riots. In fact, there is no real violence there, though you might understand there'd be a threat of violence. But what they're saying is out of your house and into the street, out of your house and into the street, which is, of course, quite not what they suggested in their pamphlet that they were distributing to exactly this neighborhood the day before. They were asking you to voice support from your house, which is itself an ask that is uh, um, potentially a big one because it would appear to be a kind of uh, payment that you must give whether or not you believe it. Um, But the very next day, what what the protesters who might later become rioters are doing is demanding that you not merely show support from the safety of your own home, but you get onto the streets with them. So there's a trope built in here that were you to see it in a different context, everybody would get it 100%, mm-hmm. which is the veiled threat. Yeah. It's not even a threat with plausible deniability. It's implausible deniability, where a threat is leveled, but it's done in a way that is unprovable. 
You can't tell yeah. for sure that it's a threat, not at the level that it would re be required to prosecute somebody for it. But it's obviously a threat from the point of view of the person hearing it. And so, you know, so out of your homes and into the streets, that's a demand. Mm -hmm. A demand being shouted by people shining very powerful very lights nice. into people's homes. Imagine you were at home and an angry crowd that is setting fires nightly in Portland is outside your breaking house. Breaking windows, breaking into into buildings, police precincts, yep. Night after night. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, well, you could report this as uh, protesters marched through neighborhoods and, you know, invited homeowners to join them. I'm sure it's been reported that way. I'm sure to the extent it's been reported at all. And I mm -hmm. must say people around the world who we're in contact with have the sense that things are calming down in Portland. Right. I see no evidence of that. Nope. It's hard to know because you have to, the protests are so concentrated that it's not like the evidence is, you know, we don't encounter it on the way to the market or the post mm -hmm. office or whatever. Um, but well, we were assured things would calm down once uh, the governor and the mayor negotiated uh, that the feds would leave so long as state and local police um, came forward and started doing their jobs. Right. They're not being allowed to. No. But the point is, okay, so that's a that's a implausibly deniable threat. The shining of bright lights into people's windows um, and the out insistence of your house and into the out street. of that's that's on the cusp of deniability, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Zach, could you show the one that I had the similar looking video from one of the last couple of nights? Now this one, we cannot hear it. All right, you can stop it. So what that one, saying? Uh, wake up, wake up, wake up, motherfucker, wake up, Okay. right? Now, that doesn't sound like an invitation. Not really. Now, it could be uh, a temporally inappropriate wake-up call. I mean, as long as we're doing plausible <laughs> or implausible deniability. Maybe they think the people of North Portland are nocturnal. Right, who yeah. knows? Um, mm -hmm. But the point is, that's very threatening stuff. It's threatening to anybody who sees it. A lot will rest on the fact that you're not likely to see that. If you are tuned into certain accounts on Twitter, you'll see it. You could, you know, you could subscribe to those accounts and you could see the stuff from every single night. Yep. Or you and could the few accounts that those videos are coming from have been uh, have, have been described as uh, unreliable because they report the same kind of story all the time. Right. As if reporting the same kind of story all the time itself makes you unreliable when actually it's because we've got 86, 87 nights now of uninterrupted. Uninterrupted. I mean, and, you know, I'm, I can't be certain of this, but I think that from the point that violence showed up uh, late, it's been consistent every night. There's been yeah. at least some. Um, so, okay, you've got a situation in which if you're tuned into certain, uh, if you're tuned in, let's say, for example, to the Portland subreddit, Mm -hmm. The Portland subreddit is quite consistent in reporting um, that peaceful protesters are out working hard and uh, being attacked by police. Um, As we would be led to believe by that pamphlet. Right. right? The, so, so basically you've got two stories. They're completely incompatible with each other, mm -hmm. right? And one of them is just uh, 
absolutely insistent on the fact that this is about racial injustice, that the demands are reasonable, that the response is unreasonable. Well, and I mean, there's just a couple of tropes again, uh, phrases even, that you see repeated over and over again that seem to have lodged themselves in people's brain and that are just very effective, mostly peaceful. The vast majority of the time, um, you can go and you don't see violence. And in this particular case, the fact that you can predict it based on time of night and, you know, position of sun in the sky uh, makes that an even less compelling argument than it would be otherwise. But who who cares? You know, most war zones on, you know, in an average moment don't look like there's much going on. Right. right? I actually, and, I, and most, I mean, actually this is, maybe this is too far afield and won't like, won't land for people watching. But I used to make this point when I would teach animal behavior. And you know, I had all these students streaming in. I love animals. I really want to watch animals do what they do. And I'd say, okay, you're going, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, have you be in the field doing animal behavior and you are going to recognize how boring most of it is because for the most part, animals sit around doing nothing just like humans do as animals, right? You know, think about your own last 24 hours or a week. You know, how often were you doing the sort of thing that you would be excited to see an animal doing? Um, you know, and this, you know, the, the, the moments and for humans, you know, maybe eating would count because that would be, uh, you know, prey capture in a carnivore. But it would just be browsing if you're watching, if you're doing deer behavior. Um, but, you know, how often are they actually like having sex or engaging in territorial interactions or, you know, feeding their chicks? It, it happens not very much. And so the vast majority of time is spent in this sort of, you know, resting state, just like with these protests that become riots reliably. So we have not talked about this in advance, but of course I was thinking the very same thing and I did a few back of the envelope calculations. Really? Yeah. It turns out I don't World, I don't I don't see an envelope. World War One was eighty one percent peaceful. Eighty one. Yeah. Yeah. World War Two You're gonna you got the receipts for that. World War Two yeah. was more than eighty five percent peaceful. And here's the one that really blew my mind. World War Two was was more peaceful than World War One. It was more peaceful. Amazing. Um, the uh Presidential motorcade in Dallas in 1963 was 99.8% oh, peaceful. It's just that one moment. Just a very brief moment yeah. of not peace. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yes, these calculations about how peaceful something is can be very misleading if you're not paying attention to the objective, which actually is to wield power. Well, and, and like, I'm banging this drum all the time, but it's another form of enumeracy. Like, oh, mostly peaceful. Mostly doesn't mean what you think it means there. It's doing a job that is rhetorical, that is political, that is achieving a goal. It's not actually describing something that is meaningful in the way that you think it is. Yeah, it, it describes nothing. And it's it's obviously completely preposterous. It's a phony story here. Um, and so, all right. Um, the fact of us being unable to agree on the basic facts of what is taking place. If you're paying attention to the Portland subreddit, you get the sense that there are protesters who are under attack by the police, that that's what's mm-hmm. going on. Sure. If you're paying attention to Andy No or this account, uh, BG on the scene, who's been documenting these things. That's where that first video was from. Yeah, so. you have a very different impression. Now, the fact is, the Portland subreddit Reddit cannot marshal evidence that these protests are peaceful in light of the fact that what they do is fail to report the part that isn't peaceful. So that's not really... It's verificationist. It's verificationist. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, uh, Andy No and BG on uh, the scene and these other accounts that have documented this have shown you evidence. Now, it is possible 
and I'm not saying that these accounts do this, it is possible to misrepresent this as what is going on across Portland, which mm-hmm. is not true. Or right? to, you know, or to show evidence of, pro- of of rioters being violent and not to show evidence of police being violent. That is certainly a way that, uh, that those videos could be cherry-picked to create a narrative that is not true. Right. It could be cherry-picked. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there's certain stuff here that's just very completely unambiguous. And if you have done what we've done, which is check in on what's going on in Portland, it's very clear what's going on. You have a peaceful protest that precedes a riot. The riot is reliable. It involves arson. It now involves harassing people in their own homes. Um, It involves breaking and entering. Uh, uh, Let's see, Zach, do you want to put up the, uh, the fire? So we have nightly fires. This one, I believe, is from last night. Again, this is uh, VG on the scene. This is a... What did that lime scooter ever do to them? Uh, yes, this was falsely reported as a bird scooter. It has now been corrected to a lime scooter. Oh, I got scooter. it right. You did get it. Oh, right. You, you yes. nailed it. Um, oh, that, that is some reporting on the ground right there. Wow. False reporting is the wrong kind of scooter. Wrong brand of scooter. Yeah. But, I mean, here's the thing. Okay, these things are being lit on fire. Um trash cans are repeatedly being lit on fire. This is actually releasing toxins into people's neighborhoods. This stuff actually gets breathed by people. Sure. Well, but what it's also doing is releasing pent up energy. Well, sure. And and this, you know, so the, the cover story is one that some of the people engaged in this behavior actually believe. Uh, And it is nearly impossible for people in the midst of such activities, especially emerging as they have after, I mean, at this point, the protests and riots have been going on for longer than the lockdowns did before they started, which yeah. is uh, which is amazing. I remember when they started, it felt like, well, this is how the end of lockdown will reveal itself. It's like, no, we're still, you know, still in Portland. We're still in, God, what, phase one or something of, of reopening and, you know, the schools are staying virtual and all of this. Um, but people... People who are engaging this, and even most of the rest of us, cannot begin to fathom how much of this is about the manifestation of a mental health crisis, a mental health crisis that is only going to get worse. Here, you know, here we are in the northern temperate zone, and indeed, for those of you who aren't in the Pacific Northwest, who have this image of it being rainy all the time, we truly have the most beautiful summers on the planet. Brett and I have been, you know, not all over the planet, but a lot of places, and there is no place else we'd rather be. Uh, July, August, September. It is. It is gorgeous. And, you know, it has. It, this year has been a little bit weird, but um, you know, in general, clear blue skies and eighty degrees, and you know, going down to fifty at night, and no humidity, and just completely gorgeous. And it will become dark and cold and rainy and depressing soon. The days are getting short, fast, shorter, faster now than they have been, and the election is coming. What is this going to look like? The, the only thing that will keep the stuff going on in the streets in check is the fact that it will be harder for people to motivate to leave their homes when it's gross and cold outside. But this, this is peak beauty here in the Pacific Northwest. It does make it easiest to get out there, but it's also the moment when people are probably at their mental health peak in general in the year. And there's no end in sight to lockdowns to virtual schooling, to, to being able to go back to live theater, live music, bars, clubs, hanging out in restaurants inside safely, you know, hanging out at restaurants outside, you know, pretty safe. And I know some of the restaurants are open inside, but probably not safe. So you know, what what is going to happen? It's 
it is it is a toxic toxic brew. You you said you know it's going to release toxins when when they're setting fire to the stuff. Yes, yep. it is, but it's also this release of energy that is not in and of itself healthy, but is also not fully released. Yeah, we are we are headed for a calamity here. Um, Zach, can you put up the uh, public service announcement video? So in that video, the person making the announcement makes the claim, and it's very familiar to us from what happened at Evergreen. Uh, in fact, a lot of this is, and I've seen people comment on... What is he saying? Uh, she is saying um, that the protesters should be paid for what they're doing. Um, and there's this sense, yeah. you know, there's... It's just, a, it's either a complete lie or... It is a level of delusion that is almost inconceivable. That reminds me, I mean, this is anecdotal. We, we heard several times that the protesters should have been paid at Evergreen. Um, but I also, up in Olympia, heard, um, just anecdote, but it struck me as su such a perfect, perfect description of the problem, that there was an employee at the local food co-op uh, who was making trouble for everyone. And also never showed up to work on time and made more work for everyone and was you know very much very much an activist but at a place that was you know this is a a, a worker owned cooperative that had some of the best you know best deals for food for people and that's where we shopped when we were there out there and um it was just very very hard to get work done apparently in the presence of this employee and a friend of ours who worked there said to me in all sincerity, I just wish that we could pay for this employee to go and do their activism somewhere else where they could really be doing good in the world and allow us to do the work that we need to do here. Like actually hoping for payment within a, you know, a not very well-funded people's food cooperative to basically offload to make this problem person an externality into the rest of the world. So, so much of this comes down to a failure to extrapolate about the, the simplest and most obvious kinds of game theory. But when you have a problem person who um, people think, well, maybe if we pay them to be a problem elsewhere, we can get our work done, they can do their important thing. In effect, that's what this protest is. This mm -hmm. protest is a demand for a transfer of resources, power, well-being. Yep. Does anybody think that this this movement is composed only of good people? Because if it was, how would it not accumulate bad people given that that's mm -hmm. what it's angling for? Wouldn't it tend to attract them? Of course. And right. so, so, But again, with this mostly X um, configuration, right. right? Like e even if, and I don't think this is true, but even if Black Lives Matter, for instance, was started out in good faith by really good, honest people who really wanted only the best for black people and saw the injustice around uh, policing that appeared to be racially motivated and courts that were still racially motivated and all of this, uh, that, that in entirely benign and good faith movement would come to have some people who would game the movement, and then you could still claim, 
well, it's mostly good faith. It's mostly doing the right thing. Doesn't matter. Bad faith actors win even when they are a tiny minority. In fact, they win less often at the point that they become a majority. This is there's a there's a density dependent issue here too that it's harder to do to do your thing at the point that you are out you know you are becoming more and more densely represented within a population if you are a bad faith actor. So it strikes me that we are seeing you know I, I hear a lot of metaphors and I've wielded uh, many of them myself. I've uh, long argued that what we're seeing are um, Trojan horse arguments. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very powerful way of seeing it. But one I have not heard said very frequently is the wolf in sheep's clothing. Mm. And I think we are seeing something general of this form, you know? So um, you have a lot of these rioters. In fact, it appears to be the great majority of the rioters are white. Mm -hmm. They are masquerading as champions of black people, which makes them almost impossible to challenge in the current political environment, yeah. right? Because um, black people have a real claim on long-standing injustice, systemic and otherwise, uh, in this country. So if you claim to be standing with black people, then you can get away with crimes that other people could not get away with. And that's happening now for 80 some nights. But we are also seeing, you and I have trans friends. Mm -hmm. They want to be treated decently. They want to be able to navigate their lives. They want it not to be the only feature of their lives that anyone ever talks right. about. They want it to be uh, a feature of their life at a similar level of everybody else's sexuality where it's not the well, thing. Sex ID, yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but we also have people who are clearly abusing the category in order to get away with all kinds of obnoxious behavior. So that is to say, um, the, you know, the dragon that is masquerading as the damsel in distress is a very difficult entity to fight mm -hmm. right and so th there you got a protected yeah. category call me ma'am right yep. exactly um and so there is um i don't know what how obvious this would have to be in order to be able to get those of us together who want to live in a decent civilization and say actually we have an obligation to put down this protest because this protest is simultaneously not what it appears to be not what it claims to be is engaged in i mean i don't know how much clearer this could be you have people living in portland terrorizing fellow portlanders in what universe is that acceptable even if those people who were being terrorized held obnoxious beliefs. They are entitled to hold obnoxious beliefs. That's part of the freedom that allows the system to work. But right. there's no evidence that these people hold any obnoxious beliefs that would warrant any such thing. So you have to put down this protest, but you can't do it because somehow uh, this tiny number of routinely violent people is wielding a totally phony story. And here's the key, is that our... We have descended from a polarized society in which there was overlap, in which we believed, into a discontinuous polarity, yep. mm -hmm. where we don't agree to the same facts. Mm -hmm. And that means that if you are of the verificationist stripe, where you subscribe 
to you know somebody who's going to slant the news in a way that will make you happy, then you do think there's a peaceful protest in Portland and that it's being attacked by police and that they successfully uh, drove out the feds who were sent by Trump with no provocation. It is now considered sufficient to know who said a thing, to know what you think of it. You do not have to know what the words are, what the thought is, what the idea is. All you have to know is the person, and that person has already been slotted into I agree or I don't agree categories, and that's sufficient. And, um, you know, I think this is part of why we are we are confounding uh, to the extremes on, on both sides, um, because we won't say, you know, orange man bad, and if Trump said it, it has to be evil. Um, and we also won't abandon the fact that we are actually progressives in the old style of, of progressivism, and but hold no truck with this nonsense authoritarian garbage that threatens to destroy civilization. And uh, most importantly, I mean, this is implicit in what you just said, but most importantly, we do not in any way avoid the evidence that comes from the other side. Right. Right. You've read Kendi, right? Yeah. Um, so in fact, that's that's where we're going. Next. We're going, but yeah. let, we need to connect a few things up here. So one, I'm not done reading Kendi. Unfortunately, as part of why my voice is like that, I'm, st- I'm still <laughs> in it. <laughs> um, in a, in a in a mafia movie. If somebody comes into the shop and they say, oh, it's a beautiful shop, it sure would be a shame if something were to happen to it. Okay, it's a protection racket. We all get it. That's the trope, right? Same thing is happening here where you've got a protection racket that is threatening people unless they join up in some visible way and lend their fuel to that fire. And I should say... You know, we've had this happen personally. We've received correspondence at home signed by people who claim to be Antifa and, uh, you know, done with the appearance of a greeting card. Um, That is an amazing fact. It's they're obviously it's meant to be taken as a threat. And um, and it you know, if one says I've been threatened, then it can be taken as a greeting card if that's what you're inclined to do. But at some so level... the words were written on a greeting card? <laughs> it, it's, it's obviously a threat. It's obviously based on nothing. If you pursue the um, claims of the movement, those claims don't add up in even the most superficial way. And of course, there's a fail-safe claim at the bottom, which is that your attempt to evaluate claims with logic is itself part of the problem. So the point is, you know, it's, um, it's, uh, it's an infinite hall of mirrors in which people are wielding levers, including threats of physical violence against people who haven't done anything wrong, hiding, you know, wearing sheep's clothing in order to maneuver unfettered as wolves. How obvious would it have to be, right? Like, it's completely obvious. And the problem is, somehow, Mayor Wheeler is so weak, even though, even though these people are, I don't think I have it queued up, but calling for his head. Sure. Metaphorically, Mm -hmm. right? Wheeler is the problem. He's still won't do what he has to do and say, you know what, enough's enough. You can't simply be lawless, burn down what you want, break into buildings at will, walk through neighborhoods and harass your neighbors. We're we're ending this now. Really, other other leaders should should take note. We 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 tried to encourage you know, we were really speaking to other college presidents after Evergreen, going like, okay, 
This college president that we had at Evergreen was a disaster because he sided with them, but he did so weakly. And of course, they came for him when they didn't get the outcome they wanted. This is exactly what happened to Wheeler in Portland. And other mayors, other college presidents, other leaders of any sort take note. Pretending to be on their side or even actually really thinking that you're on their side, you're going to sign on as an ally and you're going to do their bidding, you're not safe. You will not be safe. And more to the point, because if you took that position with any sense of good faith at all, you were supposed to be protecting your constituents or your students and faculty and staff, depending on what kind of organization you're in charge of, you are doing the opposite of keeping your people safe by doing that. You need to stand strong against this stuff as early as you can and then and back it up. And that is not to say that there isn't a place for good faith protest. We need that in a democracy. We 100% need it. But this, this thing that is happening to Wheeler utterly predictable. Totally predictable. Utterly predictable. He, uh, an early version of this happened last summer with the protests at the ICE buildings, I think. And uh, he, you know, he did exactly the same thing then. Of, you know, of, of course he's not going to win against these people because they can tell that he doesn't really know what he's doing and he's not really on their side. And also this form of allyship is not really ally. It is you're useful until you're not, at which point we'll kick you to the door. All right. Um, before we move on, uh, I want to point out, you read that description from yeah. Coddling of the American Mind, known informally in some circles as Coddling. The Coddling. Um, uh, about Hawk Newsom, who had gone to the, um, the Trump rally as a BLM um, supporter and had had that very extraordinary interaction. Mm -hmm. Now, if you haven't seen the video of that interaction, you should look it up. Just look up Hawk Newsome. I'm sure it's on YouTube. It'll be one of the early results. It's a an absolutely beautiful thing. And I must say, it represents a possibility that hovers everywhere, right? People are, in general, decent. And if you are willing to give them a chance they will very frequently give you a chance and you can cross these bridges. And you and I have been doing this. It's extremely rewarding. There's no reason you shouldn't do it. However, the tragedy of that particular case is that um, Hawk demonstrates on video, and many people saw it. I mean, it was like the kind of stuff that brings you to tears in an environment like this, um, that Hawk obviously has that capacity within him as did the leader of the of the pro-Trump movement, but I don't remember his name. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, however, if you will check in with Hawk more recently, he is no longer of this mindset. And oh, no. I think that this uh, represents a um, really a catastrophe because... What do we see? Well, so um, you should look up a podcast that John Wood Jr., who, if you're not familiar with him, but that sounds familiar, you may remember him from the Black Intellectual Roundtable that we did on Dark Horse. So John Wood Jr. Uh, is um, an ambassador for the organization Braver Angels. And mm -hmm. the Braver Angels podcast, uh, John had Bob Woodson, a friend of ours, uh, on with Hawk who, who was Bob Woodson, uh, who marched with King in the sixties. He's a, he's an original civil rights, uh, activist from the sixties. He's an original civil rights activist. And this is interesting. He, um, marched with King. He was originally, um, very much on board. And then he watched the movement change and he, um, 
parted ways with it, and he's mm -hmm. been um, doing amazing work ever since. Mm -hmm. So really high-quality work that has um, saved a great many people. Uh, so, but definitely speaking now from from the right side of the aisle, from the aisle, not the correct side, the right side. So he's he's a Republican now. He's yep. he is, but mm -hmm. um, at some level, he is on the personal responsibility side of things. On the other hand, personal responsibility demonstrably works, and mm -hmm. he has been absolutely tireless about this, and the um, positive effect is undeniable. Mm -hmm. So he speaks with a great deal of credibility. Um, Hawk Newsom was having none of it. On this podcast. So John Wood Jr. is leading a conversation between Bob Woodson and Hawk Newsom. Okay. Yeah. And basically, Hawk Newsom effectively repudiates his openness that he displayed in mm. the interaction with the Trump supporters. When is this? Do you know? Uh, it's last three months. Okay. Yeah. I mean, this, uh, it's so sad. And it unfortunately, reinforces the point that I was trying to make, which is that even even this this book that was written two years ago, well, that was published two years ago and written you know two years and one and two years before that, which was pointing out how dire a situation we are in and was able to find a couple of examples of of good of good faith and openness, even those doors are closing, right yeah. and that we we just we are not seeing anything of the kind of openness and generosity of spirit or um, imagining that other people have intentions and honorability just like you do uh, that we were even a couple of years ago. So I think the thing that I'm getting out of it, even in a very polarized environment, there are still things on which you might agree. Yeah. Right. In other words, there are things that are simply good for the nation and we can be divided about a lot of stuff, but we should agree, obviously, on the stuff that's good for all of us. Why wouldn't we? It'd be insane not to. And it would be crazy if there was nothing in that category. But yeah. our style of interaction has now produced an assumption that if it's good for you, it's bad for me. Right. This can't help but be a disaster. And what it means is that we are botching the stuff that should be within our grasp. Yeah. Right. If everybody feels good when they watch a BLM guy and a Trump guy have a positive interaction in which they come to agreement about the fact that all lives are valuable, right? If that makes people feel mm -hmm. good, you would imagine there'd be a lot of it because it would yeah. be a, you know, a, um, but what happens is one gets demonized for it. So if you have polls that are serving their own interests, selfish polls that don't want us to find common ground because it is not in their interest that we do so, what they will do is they will demonize you when you seek it. And I must say this yep. is uh, in the Unity 2020 context, um, I have seen a huge outpouring of patriotism and decency amongst people who have gravitated to it. But I have also seen the most Im amazing emergence of this bitter, toxic, cynical, despicable voice, right? Where people, uh, I mean, look, you can disagree with Unity 2020 if you want, right? You could say, well, you know, it's too late. You could say, I don't believe that your anti-spoiler uh, measures are actually going to work. Uh, so, you know, we have to reject it. But... The thing that has come back at me has been the accusation that it is not a good faith proposal. 
that I am actually up to something, that I'm working for somebody or that I'm trying to accomplish something greedy or something like that. And it's a shocking thing. But if you, if you take out the content of isn't that it, accusation. It's, it's always the first thing that shows up though, isn't it? I mean, we, we, we saw, we, we've seen this and we've heard from other friends who've gone through the looking glass that that is one of the first, if, if you emerge and you're standing, if you have a movement that appears to be, that has some traction and has some support, the things that start getting lobbed at you are you're working for Koch brothers, right? You're, you know, you're part of the Fox News network. You aren't what you say you are. You're grifting. You know, all of these right. things will you, show up. You're serving your own interests, yeah. right? So, I find this shocking, though. I mean, on the one hand, I think it basically, you know, if you take our motif of you're very often better off turning down the sound on human interactions because you'll understand better what's going on. Mm -hmm. In this case, you can't really turn down the sound, but you can turn down your focus on the uh, actual content of the accusations. And you can say, when a party sees its interest in division, right, when it doesn't want unity, mm -hmm. what will it do? right? It will drive up the costs of anything that tries to find common ground, right? Yeah. And so the point is when you see something seeking common ground, and then you see it taking fire from outside, this is simply what it is. Somebody doesn't want that middle ground discovered, right? They don't want the 70% of Americans that the Hidden Tribes Report identifies as the exhausted middle that basically agrees on what direction the country should go doesn't want that thing to unify. It needs it divided. And so that um, the punishing of the honorable middle is just so despicable. And yeah. um, we should just, we should name it somehow and then just learn to recognize it because it's going to happen every time. And since the only way out of this pickle is finding some path in which we can do what Hawk Newsom uh, mm -hmm. did in that interaction where we can cross bridges and find the humanity in in our fellow Americans or fellow Portlanders or whatever. If that's what has to happen, then we've got to be able to resist the accusations that come back at you when you attempt it. Yeah. Okay, slight, uh, slight pivot, although it's all um, on similar stuff uh, today. Zach, if you would show that uh, tweet from James Lindsay, just to start us off on this little little segment uh so hold on i can't see it there uh he's just quote tweeting someone who says there is no way until we eradicate capitalism we cannot eradicate white supremacy capitalism is inherently a vehicle for and created to spread white supremacy okay so <clears throat> well then um i found that absurd of course and it just reminds us of what has now been acknowledged as uh some of the actually marxist roots of the actual black lives matter movement um but it's also true that capitalism is plenty useful um to those who are trying to gain power and in fact they're going to need it um and as evidence here we have um you want to pull up sack that um nbc boston article, um, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey donates $10 million to the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research. Uh, the sub the subheadline being, the social media giant CEO and co-founder donated $10 million to a Boston University Research Center founded by Ibram X. Kendi to combat racism. Um, note, this is not to combat racism. 
that's what Candy wants you to think. That's what, I don't know if Jack actually thinks that or not. This is basically amounts to a don't hurt me payment from Jack. This is, this is the same thing. He needs to look woke so that, so that no one comes after Twitter at some level. Maybe he believes it at this point. It kind of doesn't matter. Um, but no, despite what the headline says, this is not to combat racism. What it is, quite explicitly, this new uh, institute at Boston University is to promote anti-racism. And as we talked about in episode 39 uh, at some length, um, this is this is Kendi's rhetorical trap. He's created a binary, which is a false one, in which he said, uh, if you are not anti-racist, and I, Kendi, get to define anti-racist, then you are racist. Everything that is not anti-racist with my special definition is racist. And if you don't quite know this, then you can mistake promoting anti-racism for combating racism. Right, those those words, those things sound like they're the same thing, but but they're not. Um, and if you think they are, as presumably the authors of that NBC article um, believe, uh, then you've fallen prey to this rhetorical trap of Kendi's. Um, so no, once again, you should be opposed to racism, obviously, uh, and you should be opposed to anti-racism, which no, is not in fact a racist position. So um, not only is this being, you know, this is awful. Uh, that we've got a drop in the bucket for, for was it Jack Dorsey? Um, but it's going to make a huge difference in the efficacy of this new organization that Kendi has been hired just this summer uh, to create at Boston University. Uh, but it's also dangerous. So, Zach, would you show the PDF with the job announcements uh, for this uh, thing? So, oh boy, I'm gonna have to pull it up so I can see it. Um, yeah, that would be great because I cannot, we can't see that. Um, it's still too small. Uh, here we go. So here we have it. The, this, is, this was sent to us by um, someone who's at Boston University and who was asked to be anonymized because like so many of the people who are contacting us now, they say, I can't afford to lose my job. I still need to pay off my loans. I don't want to be canceled by my neighbors. You know, those are all different things that we've heard from different people. And um, so this is this was from an internal email um, to staff and faculty at Boston University uh, for the Center for Anti-Racist Research, this center that Kendi has uh, founded and that Jack Dorsey has just contributed $10 million to. Uh, and they're looking for associate directors from within the Boston University faculty. Uh, they are now seeking two BU faculty to serve in the following roles. The second one is the one that's of particular interest. Zach, if you would scroll down to the associate director of narrative. Um, the associate director of narrative will lead the center's narrative pillar, which aims to foster public scholarship that shifts the racial narrative problematizing people of color. So that itself is a, um, is a claim that the racial narrative, that there is a dominant racial narrative problematizing people of color uh, right now. Um, but maybe more important is the idea that one of the four pillars of this work is narrative. We've got research, policy, narrative, and advocacy. And usually at a university, you would have research and policy, maybe. Policy would be a separate sort of an institution, right? Maybe, uh, what is it, the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, I think, um, which presumably does some policy work. Uh, and um, think tanks tend to do policy. When, when policy-oriented 
organizations are within universities. They are generally a little bit isolated from the work of the university, which is research and teaching, which is about truth-seeking. So not only are research and policy here together and, and fine, this maybe this is that sort of institute, but narrative and advocacy. And if you, if you click through onto some of the actual uh, links on the site, you find that they are talking about uh, training journalists and working to get into extant journalistic outfits uh, with, the, with the narrative that they will be creating, which strikes me as so dangerous and so counter to what should be happening in university that I, I, I can't believe I'm still surprised, frankly. Yeah. Well, it matches, it is the type specimen of everything that we and others have been talking about on this front. Mm -hmm. um, so um, you cannot be, as Jonathan Haidt has clearly pointed out, you cannot be a university that is focused on truth-seeking at the same time that you are focused on um, uh, social justice, that these two things are distinct. Um, and that they are they are in a trade-off relationship. But the very idea that this institute is constituted around the idea of research at all, what is there to research, right? First of all, we've already had the conclusion spelled out up front, which is that anything that isn't anti-racist is racist, okay? So that claim ought to make very clear that there is no research to be done because that claim is false and it already dictates the two categories that things could go in, leaving no opportunity that anything is anything else. Worse, the category of, um, of anti-racist is specifically defined by Kendi as positive discrimination. Yeah. Well, so, it doesn't. It not. In, it doesn't have to be. Um, but anti-racist is about equity. And equity is about equality of outcome. So when, you know, given that equality of outcome is what you need to be fighting for if you are anti-racist, then positive discrimination is almost certainly going to be a tool that you need to deploy, right? Well, and he specifically says- Oh, he thing. does. It's just not, it's just not, you know, central, you know, positive discrimination isn't central to the definition, but it's clearly all you have to do is follow it one or two steps. And he does repeatedly in, in the book. So anti-racist. Uh, we have said repeatedly that the problem with this movement is that it does not wish to end oppression. It wishes to turn the tables of oppression mm -hmm. and that this is specifically that put in a form that is hard to fight. So I'm going to, uh, so I'm going to I'm going to try to be candy here for a minute uh, and say, well, we're not trying to turn the tables of oppression. We're trying to make everything uh, equitable. That's certainly how, how could you object to that? Aren't you just trying to maintain the position that your white supremacy has granted you all of these thousands of years? My white supremacy, my white supremacy that I, I, I said it with straight face. I presumably <laughs> earned as my ancestors were being persecuted by uh, the same white people that you're complaining about, my ancestors uh, who were literally being enslaved in the heart of Europe in the middle of the last yes. century. Yeah, those, that, yeah, that white that, supremacy. Yeah, that white yeah. supremacy. Okay, that, so, and we put, like, obviously that's easy to, to, to knock down, not that anyone else seems to be doing it, but um, what do you do with the argument that will come back? No, we're not trying to turn the tables of oppression. We're just trying to make things... Right. 
Well, first of all, I would just say, uh, game theoretically speaking, no, you cannot do this. Second of all, if you were even trying to do this, you would be spelling out an endpoint, right? Because the you know the problem, and they are the the, the endpoint is equality of outcome in every regard, right? Except for the game theory, because if you set up equality of outcome, well, no. So the game theory says explains why you can't get there. But I think that I, that is the stated goal. I would say more relevant than the game theory says why you can't get there. Actually, your stated goal isn't yet fully stated enough because it requires exactly the racial categories that you all, you know, legitimately complain about, criticize. And you know what? How how is it that we will keep dividing these spaces up? And you know, this is part of what the tra- the rise in trans activism is about, right? How is it that we will keep on dividing these spaces up so that now, you know, it's only disabled trans people from the Pacific Islanders who are underrepresented in college administrations, and therefore we definitely have to hire one of them here. So, you know, if if you can continue to make new categories all the time, there is no endpoint and there is no there there is no win that is even imaginable. But um, you know, put put that aside, even if you had stable racial categories, which like who wants that? But even if you had them, uh, you won't get there because it will fail because of game theory. Well, yes, it will. It will fail because of a massive collect- collective action problem and a free rider issue, which is if you demand equality of outcome, then the person who profits most is the person who invests least. So you, you're basically setting up a system of freeloading that has no mechanism <laughs> for uh, for policing. And so anyway... The whole thing is so obviously wrong at such a simple level that nobody as smart as Jack Dorsey could possibly believe it. But here's the here's the the thing that I get from this Dorsey bit. You point out this is a small amount of money to him. Mm-hmm. It is a huge amount of money in an academic context, and to and the vast majority of us, right? right. Like, oh. um, and the point though is it follows the exact same pattern as what people are now doing in much more mundane ways a thousand times a day in every institution in uh, the Western world, which is they are solving their own problem by making a gesture that is then empowering the movement that then comes after the next person so that they will solve their own problem and make a gesture. So point is, look, I hate to say it, right? It's very easy for those of us who don't have the kind of money that Jack Dorsey does to misunderstand what it would be like to be in his shoes. But in this case, I have to say, Jack Dorsey has enough money that he can set himself up for life. He can insulate himself completely from people showing up in his neighborhood. Frankly, he can move wherever he wants in the world and uh, be safe by virtue of the kinds of things that that kind of resource will buy. For him to externalize harm on others, for him to empower a movement that is threatening other people by giving them a token amount of money for him and a huge sum for them. He basically just um, hurt the rest of us by uh, creating a huge amount of pseudo-legitimacy. So what I've called idea laundering, an institute at BU that's studying anti-racism for the point of view... Uh, for the um, purpose of generating policy and writing narratives. This is nonsense. And Jack, you just threw a whole bunch of gasoline on that fire, presumably to solve your own problem. And it, it's uh, it's absolutely unacceptable. I'm reminded of the famous, um, I want to know how to pronounce his name, Martin Niemöller. 
<clears throat> do you know how to pronounce this guy's name? Uh, first, they came for the socialists uh, quotation. So let me just read it first and then say what I hear you saying as the modern update, which is just horrifying. So he wrote, no, I'll just read it. Uh, you can show it, sure. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Well, the update uh, that you were suggesting that Jack Dorsey, everyone from Jack Dorsey to the people with the BLM signs on their lawn who put it up for fear that they would be the people who would next see the lights shined in their windows and be told to get on the streets or else they aren't part of the right side here. First, they came for the socialists and I, you know, first they came for the socialists and not only did I not speak out, I explained to them why the socialists were wrong. Then they came for the trade unionists, and not only did I not speak out, but I explained to them why the trade unionists were wrong. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out, and I also explained to them why the Jews were wrong. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. It's not quite right, but there's some horrifying update to his, to his comment from the Holocaust that people are engaging in now that is even worse than just being silent. It is people actually offloading uh, the well-being of their neighbors and uh, the rest of society in order to protect themselves for a very brief moment. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's a increase. Instead of your cowardice leaving others vulnerable, it's uh, whatever the active version of cowardice is, where you're, where you're bending over backwards to make life easy for um, the people wielding the threat. Yeah. You are, in effect increasing the power of that threat against um, the next people in line. And I have to say, um, just, I, I don't, I see an awful lot of cowardice at the very top. The people who can afford best not to be cowards yeah. are in fact most reliable in this respect, that they are the most likely to bend over backwards. And I, I think it's some perverse version of because they have a huge amount stored up, they're calculating how much they would lose rather than how safe they actually are. I mean, if you can buy your own security force, yeah. you know, you can put your house, you know, on a hill and surround it with guards and whatever else you're doing, you're in a much better position to say the truth than those of us who can't do that. And some of us are standing up. So what the hell? I mean, Seriously, if we can't depend on somebody like Jack Dorsey to say, you know what, uh, that anti-racism stuff you're selling isn't anti-racism. Anti-racism, if that word is to mean anything, would have to be an end to racism. It doesn't. It's not some new racism that counters racism yeah. until some you know utopian future point. Well, it's. I mean, it's related to the truism that there's sort of a rolling goal that I, I don't remember if it's from corporate America or from from tech billionaire space, but people will say, you know, until until you have your first million, you imagine that that will be enough, and then you get your first million, and uh, they, they say, oh, well, now I need five million. I, I can't remember. This sort of emerges from the 80s, maybe, um, in, um, in in corporate landscapes uh, where people you know, become rich and then realize that rich isn't what they thought it was and they need more and more and more. And so you've, you don't, you know, maybe even Jack Dorsey doesn't even feel like he's safe, right? Uh, 
Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I, I'm I not justifying it. it. I get it, you know, but on the other hand, this is a, this is an international emergency. And if we can't depend on the smart people of Silicon Valley to figure out that Western civilization is coming apart at the seams, that they have played some role in allowing that to happen, and they have some obligation to the rest of us to put it right, that, you know, we, we are now you know, at each other's throats in the streets of major American cities. People are fleeing those cities. This is insane. And people like Jack Dorsey have an obligation to stand up first, not last. Yeah. Okay. One more thing before we stop, before we take a break here. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, Zach, would you show the ABC, the Australia uh, article that I gave you? Yes. Hotel quarantine officer quit over coronavirus safety concerns as inquiry hears of dehumanizing experiences. Uh, first, just the first paragraph here. An authorized officer put in charge of hotel quarantine operations at Melbourne hotels says he completed diversity training but was given no formal instructions on how to use personal protective equipment. And there's a, there's a video which, you know, we'll, we'll link to this in uh, the description or a pinned uh, comment on this video, wherein you can see this, um, in which he is asked by uh, an investigator, okay, what, what, what were you exposed to? Well, you know, I, I got training in the app, and I got training in diversity, inclusion, and equity. Well, did you get training in what the virus is or how to help people? Do you get training in, in how to use PPEs, how to distribute them? No, 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 no. So, um, and of course, there's this, this is coming in the wake of these big outbreaks um, that are happening exactly there, but but for which maybe we would never even know, right? Uh, it should, it should go without saying that if you are trying to reduce the spread of a virus, that educating the people who are in charge of reducing the spread of the virus should receive education in biology and health before they receive training in diversity, equity, and inclusion. The virus doesn't care virus does not care. I cannot believe we are here. I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm gobsmacked and I'm not even British. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, it's not, it's not just here. It's, it's everywhere. Um, I saw recently an expose, um, trying to remember the, I think Rufo is the name of the, uh, of the person who brought it to light. The um, Department of Energy is doing these trainings on, uh, you know, the the scourge of whiteness. Oh, these yeah. people Schools are... of engineering. This is this is what we need. Civil engineers um, who are more focused on the sex and race of the people building the bridges as opposed to whether or not they actually are enumerate themselves. I don't want enumerate bridge builders. Yep. No. And. There will be enumerate bridge builders along every demographic line, and there will be numerate bridge builders along every demographic line. What we need to focus on is skill in engineering, not the demographics. Yep. Now, you do need to have no racism in the system at the sure. level of hiring. If you did have racism, it wouldn't necessarily cause bridges to fall down. It wouldn't be good, though. I mean, if you yep. had racism, it would prevent you from hiring the best people, yep. which should be the objective. But obviously... If there's a problem, it needs to be addressed. But the assertion that it is a problem because everything uh, must contain this, this, you know, this ghost is absurd. And you know, it's challenging our ability to manage nuclear weapons and you know reactors. I mean, this is this is we are playing with nuclear fire. Yeah, 
and schools. And maybe next time we've we've heard from a lot of parents recently uh, from across the Western world who are seeing this show up in their kids' schools for the first time explicitly right now. I think rather than it's been going on and they're just noticing it, but it is you know especially right now because parents are seeing more of their kids' stuff because a lot of schools are virtual. Uh, it is uh, it is cropping up even more explicitly than it has been for a while, and uh, and it's it's terrifying. Uh, I think I think we're stopping there. Well, uh, I mean to say two more things before we go. Um, one, I want to just connect up a thread that uh, just as it is true that we should be eager to find places on which we have agreement that allow us to move forward on that which is in everybody's interest and we're not having that because our level of polarization is now discontinuous you have two separate stories that don't reconcile mm -hmm. this is really the explanation for what happened to us with respect to covid 19. Mm. Um, that what happened was instead of recognizing oh my god this is a dangerous situation we don't fully understand it but we certainly have an interest in containing this as well as possible we got two versions both of which turn out to be wrong. One was very focused on the uh, the rate of death, which was the wrong focus, and uh, that undercut the developing understanding of the hazard that this poses in other ways, the brain damage, the mm -hmm. um, circulatory system damage, the long-term consequences. Um, which, to be fair, would have been less obvious early on. Sure. But the point is, we all had an interest in finding out what the actual yes, damage and risk was. But the mm -hmm. basic point was, you know, half of us who were very concerned about this were being treated as nervous Nellies. We turned out to be right about the danger, but the danger wasn't where we initially thought. Mm -hmm. um, so, And I interrupted you half, you know, and then the other extreme was there's not a problem at all. There's not a problem it's at all. It's just kind of a flu. Right. And yeah. so, you know, as we've talked about before, when I walk around uh, outdoors here in the summer, with the sun shining and I see person after person walking by in their masks, I feel like stopping each of them and just saying, you know what? Outdoors, you're not, it's not like you're standing and talking to somebody, you know, face to face, walking around outdoors. You should take that mask off because you're going to need to wear it at times you don't want to. So, you know, this is the, the right moment. So anyway, you've got people who are sort of broadcasting their fealty to the mask wearing regime rather than even on bikes right so the four of us went on a long bike ride yesterday and the number of people we passed when we were on a bike path uh who were wearing masks was surprising to it, me it, well, it is surprising yeah. and it just you know it's it's a needless cost and you know, and they look at us askance. We we may have masks around our necks, but they look at us like we're on the other team. And it's like, no, 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 no. We're just doing what the science suggests would be the wise thing to do. Um, but anyway, this would be so different if we were having a national conversation about the developing understanding of COVID and how to address it in the least psychologically and physically harmful way possible mm -hmm. instead of having two teams, both of which aren't making sense. So anyway, I, I, I don't know what the distinction is between a very polarized situation in which there's still an understanding of there being some common interest and one in which if it's good for you, it's bad for me. And that's the only thing I'm sure of, yeah. right? That thing. And everything that's good for you is bad for me. Not just right. if that thing is good for you, it's bad for me, but everything that's good for you is bad for me. Everything that's good for you is bad for me. So I'm going to root, you know, if, if your guy gets elected, I'm going to root against him. Yeah. Like how dumb would you have yeah. to be to root against? I hope the country fails. Right. Wow. 
No, you should be rooting yeah. to be pleasantly surprised, mm -hmm. right? And uh, wow. Okay, so that brings me to the last issue. Mm -hmm. Unity 2020, we have uh, nominated six people. We are now on our site having an active discussion about which of them we should uh, put on our ticket and attempt to draft. Um, so anyway, this is a very exciting moment. The uh, actual drafting should occur soon. If you want to be in on it, sign up at our site uh, with your email address. Site being? Uh, the site being articlesofunity.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Articles of Unity um, and certainly join us for our campfires. The last one with Dan Crenshaw um, was great. It would be wonderful if Tulsi had been able to join us. She was not, but hopefully... Tulsi, Dan, Eric, and I will gather for a future campfire soon. And there will be one tomorrow at, uh, I think, 6 uh, Pacific uh, with, as of yet, unspecified 